0: There's a lot of things that the poorer side of the world do not have that distract us here in our Westernized culture, in our modern world. And those that experience in those cultures helps you to value what really matters in life. From Spa Damron Tenney, it's the Prosperous Doc Podcast. Real stories, real inspiration, real growth a show for doctors who are ready to improve their overall wellness in every aspect of life. Now here's your host, Shane Tenney.
1: All right, welcome back to the Prosperous Doc Podcast. I'm Shane Tenney and glad to have you uh, with us today. Uh, And I am really excited about the conversation that I'm going to get to have and you're going to get to listen to today. My guest today not only started an unusual path into medicine, but along the way picked up a pretty inspiring worldview. Um, Dr. Carlos Moretta is a board-certified oral and maxillofacial surgeon. He's the current director of undergraduate oral and maxillofacial surgery at Loma Linda University School of Dentistry outside of LA. One of the things you'll hear in his story is his passion for academic medicine because of the ripple effect it can have through the residence to the rest of the globe. Now, throughout his residency, Dr. Moretta went on multiple missions trips, including Nepal, Zambia, Mongolia, the Philippines, Peru, Haiti, Thailand, and Bangladesh. And he's learned through his travels that humanity is more alike than it is different. And as you'll hear from him, if you never leave your backyard, it will become your entire worldview. Uh, his desire is to inspire his students, and maybe even you today, to see all patients, especially those in distant lands or who don't look like you, through the loving eyes of our creator. Uh, Dr. Moretta, thanks so much for being with me today on the Prosperous Doc Podcast. Well, thanks for having me. So I'm so excited to just hear about your worldview, the impact that missions have had on you, but since we all have a starting point in our stories, maybe I'll ask you to start there. How did you find your way into dentistry and into oral surgery?
0: So I guess it all started when, when I um, probably late '80s when I graduated from high school. I don't know if you remember back in the day; it was uh, the thing to have as a as a youngster was a beeper. And um, I had a friend who was a rad tech, who had a beeper that was given to him by the hospital for which he worked, and so um, it was. It wasn't like ours; it was bigger, and it, it it took. I think it was an alphanumeric where you can actually punch in words and things like that. And I saw that, and I said, I have to have that. It's silly, what motivates a youngster, right? And so uh, he told me, yeah, you know, you should do rad tech and. And so he pointed me in the direction of the community college there in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And I ended up not in the rad tech department, but in the dental hygiene department. And so I went up to the lady behind the counter and said, hi, I'm interested in being a student here. And I'd just been out of high school about six months, I think. And she said, oh, you want to be a dental hygienist? And I said, absolutely not. I thought this was the rad tech department. So she was like, oh no, that's down the hall and to the right. And so Long story short, um, you know, she handed me a few, a few brochures. I looked at how much hygienists got paid and the amount of academics behind it. And I said, this is a better deal than rad tech. I can afford my own pager with as a dental hygienist. So I went right back and, you know, applied to the program,
1: got in, and, uh, that's how I got into dentistry almost by accident. Had you followed the signs and ended up in Rad yeah. Tech, you would have never known how green the grass was on the other side. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so yeah, I completed that, and uh, and I liked what I was doing, and I liked the environment of dentistry. So I just kept taking classes until I was ready to take my DAT. Took that, and then got in, um, and uh, ended up in uh, in Loma Linda, California, to do my Doctor
1: of Dental Surgery. Excellent, and and that is where you began to encounter. Uh, missions
0: yeah so my first year um I I came in kind of with a clinical uh, experience that my classmates didn't have so um I uh signed up for every mission trip because the school has a very robust uh service learning program uh, internationally with clinics and hospitals throughout the world that they affiliate with and and so I was going to take full advantage of this and and the school would often subsidize students to go on these trips so i said i'm in and so i think my first year in dental school i I went on eight trips down to mexico where the university had a clinic in a small town and at the end of that first year i went on my first global or you know trip that was pretty far from where we were and that was in the amazon and in brazil and that one was the one where i I came back from and i was like i could do
1: this the rest of my life and so you have since traveled all over the globe, as I read out some of the places uh, in in your introduction. Mm-hmm. Is that all through the service learning organization and efforts at the university, or is there another organization that you have participated with in your missions work? Well,
0: you know, as I moved through through dental school, I think the biggest trip I did when I was in dental school was to uh, was to Brazil. But after that you know, moving on into residency, I did a, a research year and an internship year. So that was a total of six years after dental school. And it was during those six years where I was still there training that I I went. And so now as kind of you got one foot on the faculty, one foot where you're still a student, but you can still supervise because you're now a licensed provider. And so all of the majority, a good number of those mission trips were as a resident um, that I, I took students with me. And so now I'm definitely subsidized by the, by the university
1: to to take students and give them this, this experience. And so I guess I'm just curious, because I'm thinking there may be somebody listening to us now that's either in medical school, dental school residency early in their training. And it sounds like one of the things that was so impactful to you, and and again, I don't know how intentional it was or not, but it was ending up in a training program that had such a broad service learning focus. Yeah, you, somebody's listening to this thinking, "Wow, this sounds really neat." Then, hey, that might be one of the things you want to look for in mm-hmm. your in your. <clears action. throat>
0: Absolutely, to me, it, it was a, a novelty. I I don't know. I think COVID affected a lot of things, so I don't know where we are. I know where our institution is because I'm still faculty where I graduated from. But um, I know that many schools throughout the country have now opened up. A lot of them, most of them probably have service learning type programs that they have uh, that, that students can participate in. But yeah, for me, it was kind of important to find a program that had had that kind of a of an opportunity for me, because it, it really does make you appreciate uh, what you have here dentistry is uh, even the most indigent individual here in most cities have the opportunity to walk into a county facility and have some level of of dental care so there is access it might not be the the best it might not be a a clinic in Beverly Hills but there's access and and when you go and camp it in the middle of a of a jungle and you take care of a small village somewhere you know that they don't have access. You know that you are the provider there during the time that you're there, and this is not the end-all, be-all. There's short-term missions is is not by far the uh, the perfect opportunity or the perfect uh, pro- uh, provision of care that you can do because you, you there's a lot of pros and cons to short-term missions, but it is an experience that that is definitely uh, something that you can add to your. Your CV, your experience, your life's uh,
1: experience that you can tell your grandkids, it, it's just very enriching to your career. And go back to the, the I guess, maybe the first trip you took or the first couple of trips you took to Mexico when you were in training. <laughs> um, I realize it was a while ago now, but yeah. can you remember what was it about those trips that just captured your heart?
0: Well, those trips to, to Mexico, it's funny because um, I came, uh, I still remember the very first uh, extraction than I did, you know, and, and again, this is, there's some things that I have learned that, um, I probably, if I was mentoring students and I took them with me, that I probably wouldn't have, uh, w- wouldn't repeat what I, <laughs> what I did. I had blinders on and I, I, uh, I wanted to take out a tooth more than anything. I was a hygienist. I came in with, with clinical experience, but I wanted to take out a tooth. And so I, put on blinders and my first guy that came in needed a wisdom tooth taken out and i had no business i had no business i had proper supervision at least what i thought was a you know proper supervision but not everyone who's licensed is necessarily the best person for the job in dentistry right especially not surgery um so i got into a wisdom tooth that i shouldn't have got into and 4 hours later that poor guy is still sitting there with you know his best intention my patient saying, uh, no, keep going, keep trying to get it out, keep trying to get it out. And I couldn't get it out. And and so that taught me a very, very important lesson. It's like, sometimes uh, you need to know, you definitely need to know what your limits are, what your boundaries are when you're in the mission field. We take an oath that, you know, includes the phrase, I will do no harm, you know, and that's not just for here, for uh, the US, it's for wherever you are, it's to do no harm. So It's important to know your boundaries um, uh, when you're doing that kind of work, because you leave at the end of the trip. And who knows
1: what happens when you leave. And so did that experience impact you when you came back? Were you struck with the impact you'd had on that gentleman's life by relieving him of pain? Or were you struck more by the opportunity, the learning opportunity that existed when you were outside of a, controlled environment, sterile environment, kind of Western medicine.
0: I think a little a little of all of that happens. You know, I certainly when I left that, I, I left there convicted that I wouldn't get into a situation I couldn't get out of in the in the future. Or at least to prepare an approach, assess better before I get into it. Um but I also I also wondered what happened to that guy. You know, did he end up in some hospital with a, a post operative infection in his neck? which is something that I saw, you know, routinely in residency and patients that that either ignore dental care um, or have dental care and have a post-operative infection or complication end up in a hospital with these life-threatening uh, infections. So, you know, I always wondered, you know, did I cause that to, to that man or to that patient? So it certainly affected how I approached the next seven times that first year that I went out to to that clinic so
1: i was much more careful after that since then you've been all over the globe is is there a location that stands out to you more than the others
0: bangladesh is a special place in my heart because at least in in this region of of the world here in the united states the only place that i that i have found that that is deeply impoverished as bangladesh is is haiti and that was a trip that I did in 2000. It was just after the earthquake, 2010, 2011. I don't remember. But Bangladesh was was very special to me. I, I wasn't planning on going to Bangladesh. I actually I was planning on going to Guyana down in South America, me and a couple friends um, while during my second year of residency. And we saw a visitor, a, a missionary come from... Um, from Bangladesh and do a presentation here to a group of students, including us, about what you know the work he was doing in Bangladesh. And at the end of it, we were just slack jawed. We were, we were so impressed by what he was doing that we were like, we have to help this guy out. We have to go and support his work. You know, Bangladesh is deeply impoverished country with, with a population of half of the U.S. maybe a little bit more on a piece of land the size of Iowa. I mean, let that kind of sink in. Everywhere you are in that small country, your eyes fall upon people. There are people. You go out to that quote-unquote country, and there are people everywhere. So it is an incredibly populated piece of land. And so we parked it in the middle of some field in it near, I think, the, the little town was called Jolshotra. I'm butchering that name probably. But it was a tiny little field with a small school. I think uh, there was a small Christian school, and then there was a Catholic church, and we just parked it at that school, and we were flooded with uh, with people. And the, the need was so profound. I hadn't seen anything like that before. And we just worked day in, day out, 100% humidity, 100 degrees, and, you know, the sanitation wasn't the best. And, you know, just definitely out of my comfort zone. And so it was a learning experience for me that I said, the environment, the circumstances are so harsh. How am I going to survive just one week being here? And I not, not only survived, but I wept when I left because I was like, this is where life happens. And that was a very powerful moment for me. We provided a, a lot of care, uh, not just teeth, but at that point, uh, you know, I was taking out lumps and bumps from the head and neck with uh, with the help of a general surgeon friend that was going through residency as well. So we just tag team on a lot of these. And, and you are the, and for all, you know, intents and purposes, you are the last buck. You are the only person, if you don't do this. No one's going to do it, you know? And we saw a lot of patients that came that way. And there were some things we couldn't do, you know? We were just like, we don't have the, the setup for that. But what we did, we definitely did. And and so I, I returned back to Bangladesh probably three, four times after that, you know, each time a little more mentally prepared uh, than the first time. The first time was just, uh, you know, we, I came back from that thing going, we're so spoiled here. We are rotten, you know, even... You know, these patients sit in my chair and are like, I don't like needles. I don't like needles. Wait, I got to catch my breath. And I think to myself, man, I had a seven-year-old kid run a 5K to get a tooth taken out with me, took a shot like a boss with no parents around, obviously a festering infected tooth and then, you know, dropped down to his knees and touch his forehead and touch my feet to show appreciation And just kept bowing and bowing. And and it was just a very uncomfortable thing, but I appreciated it for what it was. And then you come back here and people are like, I hate what you do. I'm only here because my insurance is running out, blah, blah, blah. You know, just get it over with. And I just think, wow. And so experiences like that make me really appreciate, you know, the people who have no access to care. They just, they're so pure in their, in their appreciation And there. It's not that I need my, my back padded. But it is so nice when, when people say, thank you, thank you, thank you for what you did. If it wasn't you, I wouldn't have this done, you know?
1: Yeah. It's so palpable. You've changed their lives.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. This wasn't an encounter of convenience right. or manipulation or something like that. This was yeah. desperation where they you've touched them. Yeah. 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 Describe a little more of the scene. You say 100% humidity, 100-degree temperatures. We parked in this thing. Are you under a tent? Are you in a yeah. facility? Are you? Yeah. What, what's the, describe that for, for those of us that haven't been in an environment like that. I've learned
0: that no matter where you go, no matter where I went after that first time, I always took a two-man tent. If they offer you a hotel stay, you know, and you're in a third-world country, yeah, you guys can stay in that hotel. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much it doesn't matter. I clear out the bed. I clear out, uh, you know, things that are in the way and I set up my two man tent because I don't have to worry about bugs. I'm there to work. And I'm a bug Like you don't even understand. I things, you know, mosquitoes in my ear. I mean, it's just, I can't sleep. <laughs> we <laughs> all have our limits, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so when I, when I, when I go on a trip, especially uh, to a third world country, that's, you know, moist and, you know, got bugs. And I just take a, I take a two man tent and no matter what they offer me, I just ask for a little corner in the room and I set up my tent there and they're, they no, but I have a bed here. And I was like, it's okay. You know, I don't do well. I have to, I came here to work. So I, I show, of course, the respect that because uh, culturally, you got to make sure that you're not stepping on any toes, but in general, you can't work if you're, if you can't sleep. And so, you know, I take granola bars. I take uh, yeah, I think, I think, okay, how do I survive this thing if I can't eat the food, if I can't sleep? So I always plan ahead with, with, with things like that uh, just to stay ahead of the game. It's uh, The sanitation thing was a little challenging. They had squat. Yeah, pot. talk about the clinical. Yeah, so squat. Pots. The, the, the camp that we were staying in had outhouses with squat pots, right? And I don't know if you're no f- familiar with a squat pot, but it's basically uh, two porcelain plates on the ground where you're supposed to put your feet And then uh, kind of a a figure of eight opening, right? And you're supposed to pull down, you know, drop them and then squat down. And then, but in this particular place where we were staying, the outhouse, the door just kept swinging open after you closed it. So the only way you could stabilize that situation because you couldn't keep it closed was to hold on to the door while you were squatting. And so when I saw that situation, the first day, I think it was, I looked at that and I was like, okay, I'm not eating because that's not happening. And so um, by, you know, this day and a half went by, I'm starving and I was probably I'm pretty regular I and mean, you probably didn't need to need to know that, but I knew there was going to be a time where I was just going to explode. And so I just went, whatever I did, it happened so fast. I was like, I think I could do this. Like I can, I can survive this. I got the, in my head, that was the worst possible scenario for me was the bathroom situation. Once it happened, I was like, okay, I think I could last the rest of the week. But it was, uh, you know, even, even those squat pots while in our American heads were like, we like a running a toilet that flushes and that's an amenity in, in a lot of parts in many parts of the world. And, but even in that situation over there in Bangladesh, it wasn't like a latrine with, uh bunch of flies everywhere or anything like that that was one interesting thing that i found in bangladesh there were not that many mosquitoes and there weren't that many flies so the bathroom situation was not so bad it wasn't like flies
1: are all over the the squat pot it was actually relatively hygienic let it never be said that the prosperous doc podcast doesn't bring raw real (laughs) conversations to you so
0: (laughs) well if you if you're if you're trying to convince people to consider an experience you have to it's not a mission trip in the swiss alps it's that's not probably where you needed the most
1: so yeah, yeah. well that's i've got a, a number of more questions um that i'll pose to you right after this quick break do you understand your personal cash flow you know the combination of your monthly income and monthly expenses Do you ever think about how much money you made last year and wonder where did it all go? Understanding where your money goes today is essential to creating an actionable plan to achieve your financial goals for tomorrow. Take control of your finances by downloading the free personal cash flow worksheet. The Prosperous Doc Podcast is underwritten by the financial planning firm of Spa Dameron Tenney, and you can download this free personal cash flow worksheet. At sdtplanning.com and click on financial resources. Don't let another month of money confusion go by when you have access to free help. Again, the website is sdtplanning.com. Click on financial resources to download the free personal cash flow worksheet. So uh Dr. Brenner, we were talking right before the break about the uh the experience in Bangladesh and kind of the accommodations and things. Tell me a little bit, what has been the most profound impact to you in your professional career as a clinician, as an oral surgeon, as an instructor to residence of having spent time in third world countries around the globe, treating people desperate for your expertise.
0: I think you mentioned it in, in the intro. I have found that, um, you know, as much as we like to identify ourselves as as having heritages or cultures that are, you know, that are unique, I have found that uh, quite the contrary exists. We're all human. We're all part of the human family, and I just feel like the more I travel, and what I always say is that everyone has a version of the empanada. I don't know what you, if you know what it. It's a turnover. It's a flaky, delicious. A turnover with either savory or sweet filling inside of it. And so I've run into an empanada in the most unlikeliest of places. And so my wife is from Argentina. This is where, you know, I think uh, that the empanada was perfected, wasn't created probably, but was perfected. I mean, I think Argentines have some of the best, you know, food in the world, but, but I was in Mongolia and went to, uh, you know, was working in a hospital there with a an incredibly talented surgeon and, and which I didn't expect to find in Mongolia, you know, and he was just so, he was not just uh, an excellent surgeon. He was finesse. He was, uh, you know, stuff that I just, thought, I'm not going to find that in this country. No, I mean, just finesse. And, and I said, I want to, I want to eat somewhere where I can eat something that's typical of here. So he took me to a restaurant and he ordered, you know, obviously in, in, in their language, And then what do you think showed up on my plate? It was an empanada. And (laughs) and he says, you will only find this here. And I said, I got news for you, brother. Everyone's got a version of this. Like even the Europeans, like they put apple, you know, and filling in it, you know, it's all an empanada and I, and everyone says, oh, you know, we here, we're, we're big into family. Everyone's into family, you know, everyone is into eating. Everyone is into, you know, um, so. I just found, I think that has impacted me a lot more. I come back here to the US and I can appreciate what a melting pot we are, but I think um, I wish I could encourage more, more colleagues. You know, it's, it's funny you go through these stages of life and I went through this stage of life between 2005 and 2015, where I was constantly going on mission trips, you know, with all the good and the bad, I don't make any pretenses to. I don't create this idea in my head that everything I did was perfect in the mission field or that everything is perfect when you go on a mission trip but I do comfort myself in thinking I tried. I tried to do something somewhere you know where people didn't have access to care. That's all. Like I said, wasn't perfect. I could have done more, could have done less or shouldn't have gone or you can always have those questions but I can look back and and say, you know, even though those years aren't fully gone, I can say I try to get outside my comfort zone and help people who didn't have access to care. And that to me is very comforting now that, uh, you know, life has has changed significantly. And I say that because a year ago we adopted three girls from Columbia. So there's this this period of of acclimation where now this is my mission. These three girls mm-hmm. are, are my mission until I make them missionaries, right? To get them up and, and to go and to think outside themselves. Because, you know, they think they kind of hit the lotto. And so they've all of a sudden become entitled. And so, yeah.
1: Yeah. And you mentioned colleagues. How do you, uh, have you traveled with colleagues? And yeah. and um, what's your, uh, what, what's the most effective sales pitch for kind of garnying a little posse to go with you?
0: My friend that went with me to, Bangla, uh, to Bangladesh, who was a general surgeon, or was a general surgery resident at the time, I had been begging him to go. Hey, okay, we can go do this. We can uh, and he, um, he would always tell me, "Hey, you know, I'm not traveling halfway around the world to teach people how to brush their teeth." And so to get back at him, and he wouldn't go to get back at him, um I, I would take all pictures of myself taking lumps and bumps from people's faces and heads and backs, things that I anticipated were lipomas, relatively simple surgeries, inclusion cysts, things like that. And I would take a picture of it and then load it onto Facebook and say, here I am teaching this patient how to brush their their molars a little more efficiently and stuff like, you know, and he knew it was geared at him because he he told me that, that I had, had written that. But he eventually caved in and came with me and had as deep uh, an experience as I had on my first mission trip. In fact, he's in Chad, Africa right now, and he's actually... His practice is in Grass Valley, California, Northern California. So this week, he just texted me right now, he, he, a couple seconds ago, he says, it blows me away that I am on a bus in Chad, Africa, and I can text you via WhatsApp. So obviously, an experience that that has moved him enough to, to do more aggressive service learning throughout the world, you know?
1: Talk a little bit about that, and you mentioned just the... Um... I guess it was the surgeon or the physician in Mongolia that was just um, really kind of exceeded your expectations. I think sometimes there is the expectation that we as the American physician, the American surgeon, we're going to go over and we're going to bless everybody with our brilliance, um, which, of course, sometimes happens. I'm curious if you can talk about when when the reverse occurs, when you realize, oh, there are there are brilliant people around this globe. There are things to learn. Yeah. Even when I'm in a place like Mongolia, Bangladesh, Peru, et cetera. So I would say
0: that you're right, that in most cases you're bringing some kind of, you know, some kind of service that they just don't have access to care. But there's so much more to life than that service. Right. So. Um, so, yeah, I mean, when I when I went to, to Ulaanbaatar in Mongolia and I spent time with the surgeon I was so impressed with his surgical ability. He was a young guy too. He was in his thirties. I think he got his training in Japan and then came back and probably not the same experience in say Philippines or Thailand, which is another place where I went, but just to learn from the people, like, like enriches your life. I would give, say, give me an example. What What's coming to mind here? Let me see here. Uh, There's so many differences in in cultures, you know, (laughs) and it all is kind of proportional to the need of of those cultures
1: in Bangladesh. But when when you talk about this, this physician or the surgeon, was it his clinical skill or a particular procedure that he was doing or the procedure without the resources you would have, or was it? his manner, or his style, or something like yeah, that. Yeah, so again,
0: again, all of the above. This guy didn't have much access. I took equipment to him, and he showed me what he was doing, the finesse work with, that he was doing with very rudimentary equipment. And I took what I thought, of, like, you know, you need this piece of equipment. I'm donating it to your hospital here, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, oh, thank you, thank you. So humble, accepting it. And then he says, just put it over there in the corner. I'm going to do the surgery if you'd like to assist me. And I assisted him and I saw what he did without my my little piece of equipment, my my introduction to the 20th century, not even the 21st. And this guy's doing stuff with very, very rudimentary equipment and finishing with plastics closures and and the smallest sutures. And you could barely see the incision. And I was sitting there going, and and always so humble with so much humility, and I, I thought to myself, man, this guy does it right. I mean, he's had to figure it out in his sphere, but the spirit that he took into into the OR and and the way he interacted with me and his patients, there's something to be learned there. And I think, uh, I think not just from a surgeon, but from from the people that we go to take care of. You know, there's a lot of things. That the poorer side of the world do not have that distract us here in our westernized culture in our modern world. and and those that experience in those cultures helps you to value what really matters in life. I have appreciated that. Enjoy the silence. my I totally adopted these three girls, and at first in the first year, they just had to have something, some kind of stimulus all the time, something going into their ears, some kind of a screen in front of them or something like that, we took all of that away from them to make them understand that there's so much more when those distractors are not there. And so I think other parts of the world, because they don't have access to all that tech and all that distraction, they get things right, you know? Mm-hmm. doesn't matter how poor you are, there's some things you're doing right when when a kid has a little stick and he's, he's you know, kind of got the tire going down the road. You know, there's something that's very, very grassroots and simple and getting outside and nature and being that we're missing here.
1: Yeah, yeah. You, you've had so many encounters, so many memories, I'm sure so many pictures. Is there a a patient or a procedure that stands out to you as being one of the most memorable?
0: Yeah, well… You know, speaking about things that I shouldn't, shouldn't, shouldn't have got into that halfway through, I, you know, I had, I had two of them. I had two pretty good sized lipomas. You know, I think when I was in Bangladesh, I was probably the most obese person in the country because these are, these are very, very simple people, simple diet, rice, egg, curry, you know, pretty much for, for, uh, for every meal. And, um, and so when I was there, you know, I, I, I worked up a couple patients. One of them had a big lipoma on the top of his head. It was probably, I don't know, maybe six inches, um, in diameter. It was good size. And this gentleman just insisted on, uh, on me, um, removing it because it was such a social stigma that he had. It was like a fist that was sitting on top of his, uh, on top of his head. And I was very hesitant to do that, even though this was the area where uh, the, you know, head and neck is kind of the area where, where I work, where I received my training, the bulk of it. But I was hesitant because the day before a patient had shown up with a lipoma the same size, but it was on his back. And he was skinny. It was like skin, subcutaneous tissue, a little bit of muscle and ribs and, and all within probably half an inch. And so I thought, oh, this can't be too hard. So I got into some trouble. I, I got into some bleeders and I thought to myself, how is this thing have so much blood supply? And so uh, eventually I uh, got a buddy, a buddy of mine, an ER, ER physician to come over uh, and tag team with me. We controlled uh, the bleeding, but man, I had had what we call a code brown in residency, right? Or even now, code brown, I think speaks for itself but after that experience the next day this guy shows up with this this big knot on his head and so i went back and i i fell down and I, on my knees and i said god we don't want to we don't want to i prayed i said we don't want to do harm we don't want to you know defeat the purpose of helping people out and and these people mind you i've never had anyone that i know of die at least while i was in the mission field it is very possible in a very Uh, honest reality that people can die from what you did in the mission field and left. And you'll never know about it. Right. So I prayed and I said, you know, I don't know if, if I should take care of this gentleman, uh, this patient, especially after what happened yesterday. But, uh, and so I sent the patient away. I said, you come back tomorrow and I'll have a decision for you. And that morning I just, I wish I could say God spoke to me or, you know, like people say, Oh, I feel like God. I woke up that morning, I looked at the patient, and I said, well, you know, I don't know what I'm getting, my, I know what I'm getting myself into, but walk with me, Lord, and, you know, be my hands. And that one was a very clean, uh, hemostatic surgery, I remove that thing under local anesthesia, like things that wouldn't happen here in the United States for, in, in a large sense because we just have different expectations of what surgery should be in many instances. And this patient, I have a picture of this this patient head on, just a face shot, while I am neck deep in his head, neck deep in his head. I was working, right? And, you know, I got my incisions. I got this tumor that I'm fleshing out. It's just a lipoma, not anything too complicated. But yeah, and that picture just stays in my mind of this gentleman who also dropped down, touched his forehead, touched my feet. And a very, you know, a show of appreciation that made me uncomfortable, but you had to stay there and let them express themselves because that's the only thing that they can do to to pay you, so to speak. It was very humbling, you know, very humbling experience. So again, that experience uh, helped me to realize that, you know, having a, a Code Brown in, in the mission field is not like having a Code Brown in the OR here where I go every week, you know? Uh, here, there's a lot of support and a lot of equipment and a lot of teams, a multidisciplinary approach. But in the mission field, you gotta—it's—it's it's a very close walk <laughs> between you and your God uh, when you're taking care of these people.
1: Yeah. For uh, someone who's listening and thinking, "Wow, I've thought about this before, and I really need to put this on my on my list uh, to get done," or or maybe I haven't thought about this for before, but I feel inspired. Uh, where would you start? Where would you suggest somebody start if they, well, would like to if, do some service work overseas?
0: If you're a, if you're a, a physician, probably have a few more opportunity. Well, maybe not a few. Well, I, I think that the best place to start is find a, a medical school near you, or a dental school near you. Find the closest one. Become an adjunct faculty. I, I don't think that the requirements are are long or protracted. I think. Your willingness is certainly appreciated by faculty. The second you become an adjunct faculty, which is, again, it's just a loose affiliation, but yet um, would would in many instances per- permit you to be the supervision for uh, for students, that would be a way to start, I think, domestically. Internationally, if let's say that oh, I'm just going to take my office, uh, it's just me, I got my assistants and my hygienist, and we're just going to go. The best way to do that is to have boots on the ground somewhere else. I mean, you're not trying to reinvent the wheel yourself. So it's always good to work with an organization, an agency, a nonprofit, a church, someone that has already, and if you're a churchgoer, maybe your church or your denomination has a clinic that they affiliate with in such and such a place. I think to work it into your, into your, uh, schedule as a provider and bringing your your staff with you broadens their experience, makes them appreciative of what they have when they come back. It, it's a win-win for everyone, uh, assuming that you have a good, but what I wouldn't do is just show up someplace and think that you're going to be a blessing with no preparation, obviously. It has to be, you know, a, a good mission trip merits a good a good six months to a year of preparation so that when you get there everything flows smoothly mm-hmm. and you can help the most people.
1: Are there any particular organizations at least in the dental field that you have some affinity well, for?
0: There are a ton. I mean you you can literally go to ADA to the American Dental Association uh, website. There's a few Christian uh, there's an organization called Amen online amensta.org there's um there's mission of mercy there's um i think each dental society in each state right the california dental society the michigan dental association the you know north all of them have an affiliate for missions either domestically or internationally and i think that's a good a good way to start a good way
1: to start excellent 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 Carlos, I'm so grateful to just hear your story and for you to make the time to share it with us. And as we wrap up, I am just aware of the fact that you and your career have just moved through so many uh, neat places. And I'm wondering who comes to your mind that has contributed so much or, or who do you see as being so impactful in helping you get to where you are today?
0: the doctor that I mentioned that uh, has his practice in grass Valley and where, where he's a little bit younger than I am actually, but he's in Chad Africa right now. And he, uh, he has three or four kids that he, uh, had, there were difficult pregnancies and things like that. And, and for him to be in Chad Africa right now, he's the one that I had to twist his arm to come to Bangladesh. What's his name? His name is uh Dr. Steve Waterbrook. Okay. So Steve Waterbrook, um, He's in Chad, Africa, right now. And the mere fact that he is there, you know, I, I've really appreciated his friendship because, you know, through his practice and my practice to, on this um, state side, we, we're always wrestling with how we can have bring more meaning into our, our practice. We have always known that uh, global missions uh, is something that just enriches your experience. And so I appreciate my friendship with him. And I'm, I'm just tickled to death that he's in Africa this week because it, it that's a brave one that he's on. It's it's tantamount to my Bangladesh trip. And, and he's taking little ones with him. And there's malaria there. And there, we both have friends that have lost children in Chad, Africa to malaria. And so uh, it, it's a brave move to do something like that. I'm not recommending it necessarily to everyone. Start small, baby steps before you, you go big. Someone else um, that there was, there was someone that that crossed my mind. Uh, I'll give a shout out to um, Ken Pearson, uh, who is a dentist in Visalia, California. He ran a clinic in Saipan down in the South Pacific for 15 years and graduated from dental school, uh, got married and went down, you know, to this island to run a clinic. And stayed there for 15 years. And when I went to visit him, it was one of the most modern clinics I'd ever been in. You know, he brought this thing up to, yeah, digital. I mean, just really impressive technology uh, there in in that small island. And he is an inspiration to me as well. And one more, Paul Yu. Paul Yu and his wife. Paul Yu, dentist. uh, His wife uh, is an ophthalmologist. We're in Zambia. For about four or five years, had kids, raised them in a mission field, in the mission field there. I went to see him, uh, I think two times uh, and work with him uh, there and just an inspiration, you know, and and there were highs and lows. And yet uh, I'm sure none of them would regret the experience that they had in the mission field that they that they bring with them the rest of their lives. They're in uh, Kauai now. I'm going to go see them in a couple of weeks for our, our family vacation.
1: Well, visiting them in Kauai sounds like a great idea. So, <laughs> and perhaps less stressful. Sure. Um, Dr. Carlos Moretta, thanks so much for being with us today on the Prosperous Doc Podcast. Thanks for your service around the globe and uh, your contribution to the dental community and to those of us who got to hear your story today. Um, for those of you who have tuned in, thanks for listening to uh, the conversation today and for your participation in the Prosperous Stock Podcast. Um, as always, if I haven't said it enough before, thank you for listening. Thank you for your reviews. Um, and I would ask you to take a second on Google Play or iTunes, wherever you get your podcast, to give us a review rating. That helps us in the search profiles when people are looking for podcasts like this. Um, your reviews and your comments are super helpful. And we'll see you back here next time. Thank you. This episode of the Prosperous Doc Podcast is over, but you're not alone on your journey. Spa Dameron has been helping physicians and dentists prosper
0: through financial planning for over 60 years. To connect with us, visit sdtplanning.com today and take your financial wellness to new levels. Join us on the next episode of the Prosperous Doc Podcast.